0: GL Radio welcomes you to this episode of Legal Q&A Live. On this program, we answer our listeners' legal and business questions that have been submitted during the week or are asked during the live show. As always, we welcome input and feedback from you, the listener, and we encourage you to join in the conversation by calling the live program at 347-855-8831 or by contacting us via our social media sites Links to our various sites are listed on our main website, utlradio.com. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice, and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. And now, your host, Peter Lamont. Well, welcome. This edition of uh, Understanding the Law presents Legal Q&A Live. Uh, We are believe it or not, experiencing some minor technical difficulties on our YouTube feed, which we are trying to straighten out or I'm trying to work on as we uh, as we speak. So we'll see if we can get that up and running for those of you who are tuning in live on uh, YouTube. Um, but today, give me one second because I'm just trying to get the YouTube feed up. Today we're going to talk about uh, a number of very interesting topics. We've received a lot of questions this week, um, some of them talking about contracts, some of them talking about uh, more of the, uh, the the procedural elements of of a case. So we're going to go through them, but before we get started, I want to just remind everybody that uh, it's really important for you guys to provide um, us with feedback so that we can have a better understanding of what sort of content you want to see and then uh, we're able to uh, obviously prepare that, present that to you. So it's important that we get your feedback. I also want to remind you that uh, if you're tuning in today, you have to understand that this is a, a weekly program. We have shows scheduled Monday through Thursday and each show is different. On Mondays, we've got um, legal news and business news and week in review, and then on Tuesday, we've got this live legal Q and A. Wednesdays, we've got um, Minding Your Business, which is a, um, a a business show in in the evenings at five o'clock, and then on Thursday, we've got uh, Understanding the Law presents Understanding Business, and we have uh, very very informative and well known guests who appear on the show regularly on a weekly basis, and we talk about everything from leadership to um how you how you hire, how you fire contracts, what you need, how you start a business i mean everything that's related to business uh we talk about it, and we talk about it in the context of uh learning through somebody else's experiences and eyes. And we've talked to people like. Cord McCoy, who is a contestant on The Amazing Race and owns a a business. We've talked to Lori Cheek from Cheek, who is uh, somebody who is on Shark Tank and, and um, a very influential woman entrepreneur. So tune into these shows, and, and where do you find out more information about these shows? Well, head on over to utlradio.com, and there's a programming schedule there. There's all sorts of information that will be helpful to you. Uh, You can see who the upcoming guests are. You can also listen to prior um, episodes of all the shows. So head on over there, utlradio.com. The other thing I want to remind everybody is that all of our shows are sponsored by Audible. Obviously, Audible is the world's largest provider of audio content on the Internet, and they're providing us with a, a special promotion for our listeners. Where you can get a free audiobook and a 30 day free trial. But the audiobook is free regardless of what you do with the trial, so it certainly is worth going over and getting the audiobook. Um, there's a special link, and you have to go to audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio, or you can go to our homepage, UTLradio.com, and click the link, which is three quarters of the way down, and it'll take you to that special offer. So it's a free audiobook. You might as well get it. Um, No strings attached, so I would say go for it. All right, unfortunately, for those of you who were hoping to find us on YouTube today, problems with the interface uh, for the video chat are preventing us from going live on YouTube. So uh, what we'll do is, is later on today, we'll try to redo this broadcast in a live format on YouTube so that those followers on YouTube can see it. Uh, But for right now, we're going to get right to today's questions. All right, so the first question deals with contracts. And this is an individual who went into a health club, right a gym, and wanted to join. It was a $20 a month membership. And they received their contract. You know how it is. You go to a health club, you get that one-page double-sided contract. The text is so small, you need a magnifying glass to read it. And they sign it. And they go home and they tell their boyfriend, who's, it's a girl, so she tells her boyfriend, um, look, I joined the gym. And he says, oh, well, you shouldn't have done that because my company is now providing health club passes, so you don't need this. So the next day she goes back and she goes into the health club and says, all right, look, you know, I'm going to exercise my three-day right to cancel this contract. I want to get my money back because I don't need it. It was a mistake. And they said to her, sorry and ultimately she decides that she's not going to pay them, and they sue her. And so the question that she had is, don't I have a three-day right of rescission? I want to explain this for a second because it's a common misconception in contract law. Um, People believe that simply by entering into a contract, you are afforded a three-day right of rescission. It's also called a cooling-off period. But whatever you want to call it, there's this is common misconception you've got three days to change your mind. And it, the fact is it's not true, okay? There are only a handful of contract types that will allow you to cancel within three days. And we're talking about federal and state laws. Federal law under the FTC provides for the ability to, con- to terminate a contract within three days if it's a contract that you enter Uh, via a door-to-door salesman, or at some sort of high-paced sales presentation. But beyond that, under the federal law, you don't have an automatic right. So now you go to your state, your individual state, and what does your state say? Well, there's a handful of contracts within your state that are allowed to be terminated on three days review. Uh, So, for example, most states have laws concerning home improvement contractors. Home improvement contracts typically have a three-day right of rescission so you enter into a contract with a roofer you decide that you don't have the money to pay for the roof or or whatever you decide you're going to move and you want to cancel that contract there's typically a three-day right of rescission for a home improvement contract now um, with respect to something like a health club there is no automatic right of rescission you sign the contract and you have now agreed to the terms People say it's not fair. People say they were tricked. But the fact of the matter is is that when you're given a legal document, something that's binding, you've got to read it. And if you talk to attorneys, this is the stuff that just blows my mind, right? They'll tell you, oh, well, you should have taken that to an attorney. You should have had an attorney review it. You wouldn't be in this bind if you had had an attorney review it. That's nonsense because who brings an attorney to a health club? Who brings your health co- club contract to an attorney? That's just plain old silly. Yes, large transactions, real estate transactions, um, very expensive motor vehicles, things like that, maybe you want your attorney to review it. I mean, clearly with real estate, you absolutely do. But generally speaking, you can't have an attorney review every single um, lower level type contract that you enter into. I mean, You'd be taking an attorney everywhere because... In today's day and age, you're entering in a contract almost everywhere you go. You take your kid to a birthday party at a bounce house, and they have you sign a waiver that says you're not going to hold them liable if your kid gets hurt. Is that a contract? Yeah, kind of. Are you going to take an attorney for that? No. So for those of you out there listening who have had an attorney say to you, you should have had an attorney review it on a simple contract. Um, That's just stupid. So... What do you do? You make sure you read it yourself. Understand the terms. Read it yourself. And also understand that you generally do not have a three-day right of rescission. Only limited contracts, only limited types of contracts provide for that. So when the next time you hear somebody say, well, don't I have three days to cancel that contract? Your mind should automatically say, generally speaking, no, but let's see what kind of contract this is. So that's important to understand because I think that most people believe that you are entitled to a three-day rescission period, you're not. All right, I want to remind everybody before we move on to the next question, call in live 347-855-8831 and ask your question during this live broadcast, and I'll be happy to answer it. And remember, um, technical problems with respect to the YouTube live feed, so we're going to be going and and doing that later on uh, today, but in the meantime... Those of you listening, uh, give a call in, 347-855-8831. Ask your question. All right, we're going to move along now to the next question, um, which is, why should I settle a case? Now, as an attorney, I hear this all the time. Uh, You'll be dealing with a client, and you'll suggest to them that it's in their best interest to settle a case, whether they are the plaintiff or the defendant, whether it is a personal matter or a business matter. And uh, oftentimes, you'll hear... The person say, well, I don't understand this. The law is on my side. Why am I going to settle? Well, there's a practical reason for settling a case. And it often can be very hard to understand when you are guided by emotions only. Okay? And what you need to take away from, from this answer is emotions do not serve you in a court of law. Emotions do not serve you in a lawsuit. Okay? What serves you? Logic. Practicality. Having a business-minded outlook. Now let's explain. All right, so why do you settle a case? Well, there are a number of reasons. Reasons for settling a case include the cost That you have to incur in moving forward with that lawsuit. For example, what you have to pay to expert witnesses, what you have to pay to an attorney. The next factor is the outcome of the case. Now, when you get to the point where you are going to go to trial, you are putting your fate in the hands of jurors that do not know you, do not understand your issue generally do not want to be serving jury duty. So put yourself in their place. How many times have you been called for jury duty? And what's your first thought? Oh, crap, how the hell do I get out of this? That's your first thought. That's everybody's first thought, you know, including attorneys. When attorneys get served with jury duty, they're thinking to themselves, I can't go to jury duty. So generally speaking, you're leaving your case in the hands of a juror. Okay? So it's uncertainty You don't know which way it's going to go. You don't know if a juror is not going to like you. Maybe your juror is not going to like your attorney. Maybe your juror thinks that you're petty or that your case is is meaningless. Maybe they're losing money by not being at work that day. And all they want to do is get out. So they're going to do what the majority decides with respect to the outcome of your case. So expense and uncertainty are two of the main factors that um, require a deeper look at settlement options. So at what point in the case do you look at settlement? What if you're right? right? I've heard this all the time. I'm right. I don't want to settle the case. All right, well, let's talk about this for a second. Now I'm going to give you an example. So say, for example, that you have a case that is worth $1,000. It is a breach of contract case with a home improvement contractor. And the law is on your side because he breached his duty. He did not comply with the terms of his contract. He did not finish the job that you had contracted with him to do. And now you legitimately are owed $1,000. Okay? So you file a, a lawsuit and you have to hire an attorney to do it. So let's say that you get some brand new right out of law school attorney uh, who has very little experience and is going to charge you ridiculously low fees. So let's just use for the argument's sake here, $100 an hour. This brand new lawyer at of law school, first case, he's good, but he's never had experience. So he's going to take your case for $100 an hour. Now your damages are $1,000. And he spends an hour or two preparing the complaint. So now you've, You have to pay him $200, and then he files the complaint, and you're responsible for the expenses. So now you are, let's say, $350 in the hole to this attorney. Well, what does that do to your, I'm right, I'm entitled to $1,000? Well, it decreases your possible recovery by the $350 that you just paid your attorney. Okay, so now the defendant gets the complaint, and automatically he says, oh, I just want to get rid of this. We're talking about $1,000. It's not 10000 So he calls up your attorney and he says, listen, I don't have $1,000 to give you, but I'll give you 800 Would you settle this case for $800? And your attorney calls you and, and says, Mrs. Smith, I talked to the other side and um, they have offered $800 to settle the case. Now... During the course of this discussion back and forth, you're returning to the other side, you're returning to you. Let's say that he has spent another fifty dollars in time. So now you owe him four hundred dollars. Your maximum recovery is a thousand. You owe him four. They've offered to settle for eight. You say, no way, that's not right. I'm entitled to a thousand. Now, had you accepted the settlement, you would have walked away with a net profit or net recovery of $400. Because you expended $400 on your attorney, you're now getting $400 in your pocket. But you're stubborn and you don't want to settle and you believe that your attorney is walking you down this settlement path because he doesn't want to continue on with your case, which is typically not true. However, that's what you believe, so you move forward. So now you receive the answer from the defendant and now you have to serve discovery demands and discovery demands but that even if they're basic bare-bone discovery demands you're you're another four hundred dollars in the hole to your attorney okay so now you've spent eight hundred dollars what could you recover two do you see how that worked out now you're still stubborn because you want your $1000. You you go for a deposition which is 3 hours. Now you paid your attorney $1250. So if you win your case and you get your $1000, you have lost money on this case because you paid your attorney 1250 and you recovered your 1000. So this is what I'm talking about from a practical business standpoint. You got to use your mind, use your head. Does it make sense to press forward because emotionally you believe that you're entitled to more money, but at the end of the day you're actually going to lose money? If you were a stockbroker, would you make that investment? If you were somebody who was trading stocks, an individual going to your broker and your broker tells you, "Here's a deal. You put in 1250 and you're going to you know, you're going to bank 1000." Would you accept that? You'd say, "Are you crazy?" So, why would you do that in your case okay so that's that's the example where money is the issue money it's it's a pure money decision. It makes better business sense for me to accept an eight hundred dollars settlement and to net four hundred rather than expend more than what i am you know have, will ever possibly recover and lose money right That makes sense now. What if you have a case that's questionable? And here I'm going to give you a great example of a case that I think uh, would illustrate this point. Okay, so you have a breach of contract case, and you believe that you complied with, let's say you're, you're, a, sub, you're, you're a contractor, okay? One contractor versus another contractor, and, um, or a subcontractor. Let's make it that example. So contractor versus subcontractor. You guys signed a contract together. You guys had signed an agreement. And, um, you know, you believe as the subcontractor that for whatever reason your um, work that you performed was, was adequate, was perfect. It's everything that they wanted. Your contractor says, no, you didn't perform these few things. And so there's this dispute over money. Now, your attorney tells you after discovery is completed listen. This is going to be a very difficult case to prove because the way that the documents have, have come come through, the way that the evidence is going to be presented, it's really a, a, a close call. It's a 50-50 shot, meaning you could go to trial and the jury could look at the facts and say, no way, the subcontractor is not entitled to any money and give everything to the contractor all right so the attorney is looking at the evidence and using his experience and knowledge as an attorney to suggest that moving forward with this case you have a 50-50 shot now you're gonna to go to jury to, the, to trial with a jury you're gonna bank your money on a 50-50 shot well if there's no settlement offer yeah, you have no choice but what if there is What if the other side, what if the contractor comes to you and says, listen, I know you think that you're entitled to $500,000. We completely disagree. We don't think you're entitled to jack squat. However, in the interest of resolving this case so that we save money on legal expenses and legal fees, we're going to offer to settle this case with you for, I don't know, pick a number, $200,000. So your attorney says to you, listen, Fred, they're offering $200,000. You have a 50-50 shot, maybe even a little less at trial. The evidence is not clear. Your case is not great. My fear for you, Fred, is that you're going to go to trial, and the jury is not going to believe you, and they are going to find in favor of the contractor, and you will get nothing. So, Fred, here's what I suggest to you. I want you to go home. And think long and hard about what you're going to do. Because if you accept the settlement of $200,000, you're walking away with $200,000. Minus my fees, which are, I don't know, let's say $10,000 for the course of the case. So you're walking away with $190,000. Now, while you believe you're entitled to more, I am concerned because I don't know that the evidence really supports your argument. And my fear for you, Fred, is that you're going to go to trial and you are not going to win. So if you're a gambling man and you're Fred, maybe you roll the dice and you go and you go to trial, see what happens. But if you're like most people and you want to bet on a quote-unquote sure thing, you take the settlement. Because you don't want to risk $200,000 in your hand on a jury not liking something about you. Or not caring about your case or not understanding the legal issues, so I know this is a long drawn out explanation, but I think it's really important to understand settling a case. Why would you settle a case when we know you're right? I mean that's something you've got to think about oftentimes. I hear clients say, "Oh well, you know, I had an attorney, and I didn't like him because he was constantly trying to get me to settle this case well. Rarely, rarely, you'll get an attorney who, for whatever selfish reason, wants you to settle the case simply because he doesn't want to be involved in the case anymore. But that's a rare occurrence. The more common occurrence is that attorneys care about what they do, believe it or not, care about the outcome of their cases, care about the happiness of their clients. If you don't have happy clients as an attorney, you are going to be looking for another profession relatively quickly. So they do care. And when they tell you it's a good idea to settle this case, they're not telling you that because they don't want you to get what you're entitled to or they don't think that um, it's worth pursuing anymore for whatever reason. They're doing it because they want to see you get the best And most amount of money, best recovery, most amount of money possible. That's why they're doing it. Think about that next time you have a case and your attorney says to you, there's a settlement offer that I have to discuss with you. Now, again, I'm not suggesting you take every settlement offer because sometimes you might be owed $200,000 and the settlement offer is $2,000. Clearly, you know, you've got to weigh your risk, for $2,000, that's nothing when you've got, you know, a 100 or $200,000 claim. So at that point, yeah, you roll you roll the dice cuz you're playing the odds. Odds are you're going to get more than $2,000 just because of the nature of your claim. So, you know, but that's a strategy decision you need to to sit down with your attorney and talk about. All right. Next question, but before, let me remind you the call-in number again, 347-855-8831, call in live with your questions. Um, I don't know that we're going to have time for a tremendous number of call-in questions today, and if you are on hold, um, just continue to hang in there. I'll try to get to you, and if not, we'll talk after the program, and we'll get your question on the next episode. All right, moving forward, what is a deposition? I've had this one come up uh, quite a few times. People don't understand what a deposition is. Um, I, had, I had somebody come in and, and ask me if a deposition is like what happens on uh, The Office. So for those of you who are fans of The Office, there was an episode where Michael um, was being deposed as a witness in Jan, who was his then-girlfriend, in Jan's, I believe it was an employment discrimination case that she had filed against Dunder Mifflin. And it's hysterical. I mean, you sit and you watch it, and it's really funny. And they say to me, is it it like that? And then I've had other people say, yeah, well, I've seen Justin Bieber on YouTube at a deposition, and uh, it looks like it's all fun and games. Is it like that? Well, let me tell you what it's like. First of all, what is it? A deposition is a discovery tool that allows attorneys to elicit and understand certain facts of a case. Okay? It's really a question and answer session. So, if you are a party to a lawsuit, you will most likely be deposed. If you are a witness with knowledge of the the incident that's the basis of the lawsuit, you could be deposed. So what happens Well, regardless of how you find out about the deposition, and we'll touch on that in another question, uh, subpoena or notice to take deposition, but again, that's not today's question. Uh, You you get to the deposition, and it is generally held at an attorney's office. It can be held at uh, a court, um, but often it is held at an attorney's office. When you go into their conference room, and you essentially sit at the table and you will have on your you know side of the table, your attorney. And there'll be another attorney who's going to question you. And depending upon um, how many people are involved in the lawsuit, you could have more than, than two, three attorneys present. But regardless, you're going to be in a conference room with your attorney, the other side's attorney, and then there's a court reporter or a stenographer. And this is an individual who is going to take down verbatim, word for word, everything that is said during the course of the deposition. Uh, they used to do it with these little steno, stenography machines. Now they typically do it with a laptop. So what's the point of a deposition? Well, it's sworn testimony. It's testimony under oath and it holds the same weight as if you're testifying in front of a judge and jury. So understand that it's critical that you are honest during your deposition, and you are going to be asked questions by the other attorney, the attorney who has requested that you come in for the deposition. Occasionally, you may be asked questions by your attorney, but a standard deposition where, let's say you are the plaintiff, you will be asked questions by the opposing attorney, and the stenographer or court reporter will take down everything you say put it into a book called the deposition transcript and that's that transcript will be used later on by the attorneys and it can be used at trial one of the primary reasons you use a deposition transcript at trial is to impeach the testimony of a witness so that's why it's super important that you tell the truth because oftentimes when you tell Fabricated stories, it's difficult to remember exactly what you said. So, for example, if you were being deposed, you were in an automobile accident, and you were not wearing your seatbelt, and you testified at your deposition when the question is asked, ma'am, were you wearing your seatbelt at the time of the accident, and you say, yes, I was. Now, you know you're lying. You know you you weren't wearing it, or you, you you, you didn't have it on. But you don't know that anybody else knows. So throughout the course of the case, after the deposition, that lawyer, the opposing counsel, manages to get a hold of the police officer who was the first person on scene. And they depose the police officer. And the first question he asks to the police officer is, officer, tell me, when you arrived on the scene, what was the condition of the vehicle? And he says, oh, it was on the side of the road. Where was the plaintiff? In the car. What was she doing? She was sitting in the driver's seat. Did she have her seatbelt on? No, she did not have her seatbelt on. Officer, would you think that there was enough time between the collision and where you found her for her to have unbelted her seatbelt? And the officer says, No, I was traveling behind this vehicle at the time that it was sideswiped and at the time she lost control. I was moments, from the collision to to me getting out of the car and looking at her. There's no way she could have unbelted her seatbelt. So now you've got that testimony, and you go to trial. And you testified at your deposition that you had your seatbelt on. So they put you up on the stand, and the other attorney says to you, were you wearing your seatbelt at the time of the accident? And you say, um, and you think to yourself, well, shoot. I now know that the police officer says I wasn't wearing it, because your attorney told you about that testimony. So you change your mind and you say, "Uh, no, no, I wasn't wearing it. And so then he takes up the transcript. Ma'am, I'd like to refresh your recollection. At your deposition, you told me you were wearing your seatbelt. Um yes, uh yes, I did say that, but it was a mistake. Ma'am, how could that be a mistake? You were either not wearing your seatbelt or you were wearing your seatbelt. That certainly doesn't seem like a fact that you would forget. Now, what has that attorney done to that lady on the stand? He has painted her as a liar. Okay? And everybody in the jury has seen and heard that demonstration. And what does the jury now think? You are a liar. What is that going to do for the outcome of your case? Well it's going to greatly reduce your chance of having a successful outcome, okay? Because there's this um, thought process in the courts that, you know, if you tell one lie, it's safe to assume that you've lied about everything else, okay? It's just the way it is. You know, like, look at your own friends, right? If you catch somebody in a lie, do you then trust them, Without question, or do you think to yourself the next time, well, he or she lied to me the first time, maybe he or she is lying to me now. Same with a deposition. So a deposition is sworn testimony. You are testifying under oath just in an informal setting, be it your attorney's office or courthouse, courtroom. Um, Very important. You need, by the way, to be fully prepared for your deposition testimony. If you have an attorney and you're going in for a deposition and you have not met with him or her prior to your deposition to go over what will be asked and how you should handle the questioning, you need to call your attorney and say, I understand my deposition is next Tuesday. Are we going to have an opportunity to sit down and address some of my concerns and how a deposition would go? You need to do that immediately. All right, moving on what is an affidavit? So an affidavit is another um, device that has the similar weight as deposition testimony or testifying in court. An affidavit is a sworn statement. All right, this time it's going to be in writing. There's not going to be an oral statement like at a deposition, which ultimately is reduced to writing. But... um, you're going to put in writing your statement of of whatever you are are talking about uh you know if you are a witness and you're going to sign an affidavit and you say yes I know that Sally Smith was sexually harassed at the workplace you write that down you sign it it's signed in front of a notary that's as good as testifying in front of a judge and a jury so again similar to a deposition we're talking about sworn testimony, and sworn testimony must be accurate, because if it's not, you will be painted as a liar. It's also, by the way, uh, illegal to lie under oath, and there have been many judges on the local levels, the state levels, and in the federal courts, who have penalized people, held them in contempt for lying under oath. So, be aware of that. Affidavit same sort of thing you lie on an affidavit you're lying under oath and you are going to get caught for sure all right um let's go to some questions that have come in since i've been on the air all right question can i be arrested for not going to court in a contract dispute i'm defendant number two it's a rent own gone bad all right now this is um this is a good question if you don't show up in a civil case, can you be arrested? The general answer is no. There, there is an exception, and I'll explain that briefly, but let's go back for a second. What happens if you don't show up to court or you don't answer a complaint in a civil case? Well, what will happen is that the plaintiff will move for a default judgment, meaning you didn't appear in the case, and now um, he is requesting that the court give him a judgment against you for whatever he had been asking for in the complaint simply because you didn't make an appearance in the case. Can you be arrested for that? No. If you have a default judgment against you, can you be arrested for it? No. Now, when an attorney goes to enforce a default or a judgment in general, be it obtained by default or otherwise, when an attorney attempts to collect that judgment there are a number of procedural means available to him or her one of them being an information subpoena an information subpoena is served upon you the defaulting uh, individual or the the person whom the judgment is against and you are required to provide various information oftentimes information including name, address, and bank account number, so that the holder of the judgment can try to collect against you. Now, what happens if you ignore the information subpoena? Well, you'll get another one. What happens if you ignore that one? It is possible for a civil plaintiff to apply to the court for an order holding you in contempt because you failed to comply with the information subpoena. Is it possible for you to have an arrest warrant issued for being in contempt of court for failing to respond to an information subpoena? And the answer to that question is yes. So, in a civil case, do you have to worry about going to jail if you do not enter uh, an appearance or otherwise participate in the case? The answer is no. If a judgment is obtained against you, And the plaintiff seeks to enforce or collect on that judgment, and you don't answer the procedural documentation that is sent to you, can you be arrested? Theoretically, if a contempt order is entered, an arrest warrant could be issued. But you have to understand this is completely different than criminal law. In a criminal law case, if you don't show up for your arraignment, you don't show up in criminal court, yeah, there's going to be an arrest warrant. Different animal completely. Um, but that's a good question. Okay, next question. In civil law, if someone makes accusations without evidence, can you have a lawsuit immediately dismissed? Well, one rule of thumb you should know about with respect to lawsuits. There's nothing immediate, nothing. Just the courts work on their own speed, attorneys have other clients in cases, so nothing's going to happen immediately immediately. Okay, Keep that in mind. But let's get to the the heart of this question. If there's no evidence, can you have the case dismissed? It depends on the nature of the case. So somebody files a complaint and says that you breached a contract. And your defense is, I never signed a contract with you. When you get served with a complaint, you can have your attorney file a motion to dismiss on the grounds that there is failure to state a cause of action in the complaint. The failure to state a cause of action is based upon your contention that you never entered into a contract. And maybe some of that information will be conveyed in your motion. And is it possible for the court to dismiss the case based on your motion to dismiss? Yes, it's possible. Probable? Well, that's Hard to say. Possible. Most times, uh, a motion to dismiss is just going to look at the pleadings And if the pleadings are good on their face, they're going to allow the case to continue. And then throughout discovery, you will be able to show that the plaintiff who's suing you doesn't have any evidence. Now, of course, you're incurring expenses as you go and attorney's fees. Keep that in mind. But at the end of the discovery period, you file a motion for summary judgment. And we've talked about that in some of our videos on YouTube. So if you head over to the YouTube page, you'll be able to check out that video, What is a Summary Judgment Motion? Um, But getting back to to the point, so you could file a summary judgment motion and argue that there's no evidence to support the plaintiff's claim. And in the case that we're using as an example where you believe there's no contract signed, and in fact the plaintiff was unable to produce a signed contract, then yes, when on summary judgment, the case would be over. Is it immediate, as this this asker of the question asks? No, not at all. The only hope for, quote-unquote, immediacy is by filing a motion to dismiss. And again, typically, motions to dismiss are um, less sort of evidentiary-based. They look at the pleadings on their face. And if the pleadings state a cause of action, then you've got to litigate that case Go through discovery, and then if there's no discovery to prove your your case, then you file a motion for summary judgment. Okay, let's see if we can get through one more. All right, what can I do to get myself out of a car loan or to take away the car from my ex? Well... There's, there's two questions here. What can I do to get myself out of a car loan? Well, in general, remember we talked at the top of the show about this idea of a three-day right of rescission and do I have the right to get out of a contract? And we determined that the answer is typically no. So now you have a motor vehicle contract. He's signed it, and he wants to know if he can get out of it. The answer is generally No. Now, this case seems to hinge upon uh, a divorce, and he's talking about his ex-wife. So apparently, he is on the car loan, and his ex-wife has possession of the vehicle, and he wants to get off of the loan or take the car. So if he's going to be on the loan and paying for it, right, he wants the car. That's understandable. So what do you do in a case like this? Well, unfortunately, you've got to go back to the court. You've got to go back and petition the court, and you've got to ask for a court order directing that you either be taken off the lease, or the loan, or the car be turned over to you. And you've got to be able to prove why. You've got to be able to uh, reason with the court that, that you know it's inappropriate that you pay the, the loan and she has the vehicle and it wasn't contemplated under your divorce agreement. There is just a whole host of, of issues that would need to be addressed. But that's the way you have to do it. You know, I'll mention quickly that we have a case involving a brother and sister dispute over a car. And it's sort of the same type uh, fact pattern in that the one sibling, the, the sister, paid for the car in full, made monthly payments, paid for the upkeep, and the brother took the car. So how would you resolve that? You know, the, uh, the the brother's on the car loan. He believed if he's on the car loan, he should have the car, even though she was making the payments. It's interesting, but it, it it can only be resolved, unfortunately, because most both parties won't sit down and talk, through litigation. And that's what would probably happen to the asker of this question. In this case, you're dealing with an ex-wife. You're going to have to go back to the court, see if you can get them to... Uh, You know, make a decision about this car and, you know, look also at your settlement agreement, your divorce agreement, and see if it was, um, you know, something that was contemplated. All right, final question. Can I sue a mechanic for damage to my transition? Damages total $4,783. Okay, so I'd need more information to answer that question, but let's just go through it generally. Can you sue somebody for damage to a transmission? Well, it depends. Was the individual, in this case it's a mechanic, was the mechanic negligent? How do we determine negligence? So we look at first, does the mechanic have a duty of care? Does he owe you, a customer, a duty of care to act in a reasonable manner? And the answer is yes. When you drop your car off to a mechanic, he has a legal duty to perform his job in a reasonable manner similar to every other reasonable mechanic duty is established did he breach the duty well in this case it's going to hinge upon that question did he breach the duty did he do something wrong was he in fact negligent we don't know you know he could have fixed the transmission the transmission could just be faulty and that's through no negligence of his own now if for example you take a scenario where he repairs the transmission uh, but fails to screw a few things in Um, and for those of you who know cars i don't so if i'm saying something that sounds silly with respect to a transmission just overlook it and try to understand what i'm saying he does something wrong he fails to do something with the repair of this transmission, yeah, then he's negligent, then he breached his duty of care. Then you go on to the rest of the negligence analysis, which is you know was his breach of duty the proximate cause of your damages, and then do you have damages, obviously so um, can you sue a mechanic? Yes, you must be able to prove negligence, and then the dollar amount forty seven eighty three four thousand seven hundred eighty three dollars. Keep in mind this. We talked earlier about settlement. Your maximum amount of recovery here in this case is $4,783. So would you want to pay an attorney $5,000 to litigate this case? You should be saying absolutely not. So keep in mind that this is a case where I know $4,700 is not chump change. That's a, a good amount of money for anybody. But at the same time... If you're going to be offered a settlement of 3000 you have to look at it from a business standpoint and analyze it and say, well, would I be spending more money on an attorney? You know, how am I going to make money on this lawsuit? So you got to think about that reasonably and rationally. And remember, there's no place for emotion in something like this. So... Think business-minded. Think like Mr. Spock from Star Trek and be logical and determine whether or not settlement is the right option for you. So that's all we're going to, uh, to get through today. I want to thank everybody who submitted questions while we were live. For those of you who had submitted questions and when we were unable to get them on the air, they'll be saved up for next Tuesday's edition of Legal Q&A Live. Uh, and for those of you who will listen to this broadcast later on, download it later, send your question in. We'll answer it on, on on the air live. So how do you contact us? Well, you can go over to utlradio.com, and all of the links to our social media pages are there. There's also a link to download our free app, which allows you to ask questions to an attorney in our office via your iPhone or iPad um, works with the new iPhones and works with the new iOS so download it, it's free there's no cost for asking a question and an attorney will respond to your question in most cases within a 24-hour period so it's uh, a handy little app to have um, just think about it the next time you're going to sign a contract you can whip out your app and you have an attorney in your pocket right also you can email me directly and uh, my email is going to be info at utlradio.com or if you want to get to my, uh, my law firm email address, it is info at peterlamontesq.com, peterlamontesq.com. Uh, you can also visit us on our main website page, peterlamontesq.com. Uh, visit us on Facebook, Twitter. Follow us on YouTube. Sign up uh, on, on iTunes for this program, Understanding the Law Radio. You'll get a podcast sent to you automatically when you subscribe. That way you won't miss any of the upcoming um, programs. Now, final thoughts or two here I just want to get to. Um, we have a lot of great shows coming up. Uh, October is just a, um, a complete blow out with, with really great guests. So let's just go through that real quick. Um, we have on the 9th of October, uh, professional photographer Rick Garrity, and he's going to be talking about photography as a business. And uh, he's photographed some really, really well-known celebrities. So he's a, he's a teacher over at Unique Photo in New Jersey. So we're really excited to have him coming on the show. Uh, On October 16th, we have celebrity chef and restaurateur Fabio Viviani, who will be on. And we have a giveaway. We have an autographed book. So check out our social media for that information about how you go ahead and enter that contest, that giveaway, to get a free autographed copy of Fabio's new book. Then on the 23rd of October, for those of you who are fans of the Bravo Network, the uh, the show that's, that's on right now that's popular, Below Deck, all about yachting. We're going to have Captain Lee, who is one of the stars of the show, the captain of the boat. Uh, the show's in its second season. We're going to have him on talking about leadership on the 23rd. And then finally, on October 30th, the day before Halloween, we're going to have motivational speaker uh, Amy Applebaum on. It's just really uh, a great lineup for October. So... Head on over to utlradio.com, make sure you check out our programming notes on the schedule so you don't miss anything, and um, you know share the links and talk about who's going to be on the show. Also, get your questions together so that you can call into the show and talk to our guests live, because every single one of them is more than happy to talk to, to our callers. Um, a, a few weeks ago, we had professional arm wrestler Alan Fisher on the show, and a surprise call in by fellow competitor, Cobra Rhodes, which was a great call and a great surprise for all of us. So call in, ask your questions. Fabio Viviani, most women know who he is. So you know, if you have a question for Fabio or you want to learn how to enter the contest to get the free, um, your free entry for the autograph book, contact us. UTLRadio.com is going to be your source for all of our links and our email addresses. So go ahead and check that out. Don't forget to leave comments. On all of our social media pages, let us know what you like, what you don't like, what you want more of, and that way we can prepare that content for you. Because remember, my you know, my my reason for doing this is to try to give back to the community and to help people have a better understanding of the law, which can sometimes be complex and also can sometimes be way overblown by attorneys. So hopefully this helps explain some of that legal mumbo-jumbo, if you will. I want to thank everybody for joining me. Thank you for downloading this episode. Don't forget to leave your feedback and comments. And uh, tune in tomorrow night, 5 p.m. Eastern Time, as Understanding the Law Radio presents Minding Your Business. We're going to be talking about employee background checks and implications of the -the ban-the-box laws that have been passed in numerous states and what sort of impact that's going to have on your ability as either an employer or a prospective employee when uh, you know, you're, you're being interviewed and background checks are being done or requested. So that's tomorrow night. That's going to be a live show. Uh, that's going to be on both Blog Talk Radio and live on YouTube. Um, and again, apologize for anyone who was trying to see this on YouTube this morning. Technical difficulties with YouTube's interface prevented us from broadcasting live on YouTube. But later on today, I'm going to uh, sort of rebroadcast this show live On the channel. So thanks for understanding, and uh, I'll see you next time. Remember that there's power in understanding the law.